I'm probably making a mistake by taping this pod right now while I'm in this particular emotional state. So y'all just gonna have to bear with me. I'm taping this just a couple hours after Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron announced that none of the officers who killed Breonna Taylor will face criminal charges for her death. So I think it's only fitting that the word of the week is injustice. It's a word that if you're black, it's not just something that happens from time to time. It's literally a state of being for black people in this country. The travesty is that most of us are so accustomed to injustice that none of us are surprised that the police who killed Breonna Taylor in her sleep are facing any real consequences. In America, the default position is to treat black people inhumanely. So for us to expect that there would be justice in the murder of Breonna Taylor would involve us carrying the belief that the system actually was designed to provide justice for black Americans. But we know better. Now, the reason I said that the police involved in Brianna's death won't face any real consequences is because one officer was charged with three counts of something called first degree wanton endangerment. If you're wondering what that means, here's the deal. When this officer fired his gun, some of his bullets went into a neighboring apartment that belonged to a man and his pregnant wife. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Not in this apartment or in any of the others that were also struck by bullets. But here's a noteworthy detail that I feel inclined to share. The man and his pregnant wife are white. The three counts are for each of the shots that went into their apartment. But there were no additional charges for the bullets that went into the other apartments, which just so happened to belong to black tenants. Make it make sense. By the way, all of the people who lived around Breonna Taylor are suing the Louisville Police Department for endangering their lives as they should which means the $12 million that was paid to Breonna Taylor's family a few weeks ago is just the tip of the iceberg of what Louisville taxpayers will have to pay to subsidize the police murdering a citizen. But let's really comprehend what the justice system is saying with this outcome. It is saying the lives of Breonna Taylor's white neighbors meant more than hers. It is saying the apartment building itself deserves more justice than she did. It is saying the police have the right to murder black citizens without consequence. It is saying that cities would rather pay millions of dollars in settlements than respect the humanity of black people. It is also saying that lone officer who is facing minimal charges wouldn't be facing any consequences whatsoever had his bullets actually hit Breonna Taylor and not just another apartment. It is saying his aim should have been better. Before I wrap this up, I want you all to remember a couple of things. The attorney general position in most states is an elected office. Do you know who your attorney general is? And most importantly, do you know how they would respond if a tragedy as unfortunate as Breonna Taylor's happens in your state? Do you know what their record is when it comes to holding the police accountable? If you don't know, you better find out. Because if we didn't know this already, the next injustice is the train that is never late and that concludes the word of the week okay my guest this week is a true champion and i don't mean in the sense that she's won trophies or that she competes as an athlete but she's a true champion for women for people of color and especially for women of color and that includes black women like brianna taylor She's author of a very successful book series called She Persisted, which highlights the achievements of successful women. And her latest book in this series focuses on the inspiring journeys of female Olympians. 
While she has been extremely successful as an author and constructed her own lane in many regards, many of us remember her growing up in the White House. And four years ago, we also recall about how she helped her mother campaign for president. I am pleased to welcome to today's podcast, Chelsea Clinton, up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So, uh, Chelsea, I just ask that you do me one favor in this podcast. Uh, I want spicy Twitter Chelsea Clinton. Okay. (laughs) Right. That's the Chelsea Clinton that I have. um, I've always been an admirer of yours, but spicy Twitter Chelsea Clinton is like my favorite Chelsea Clinton. Not to imply that those are two different people. Thank you. I'll I'll try. I'll try. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think um, that is one of the upsides of Twitter. I know there's a lot of downside, but it does allow people to see a different side of you. Um, have you found that, I mean, I know you deal with a lot of negative blowback, but have you found that, you know, people are maybe surprised by just how much personality that you show on Twitter versus I think what they perceived you to be because of all these years of public life? Well, I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for kind of how anyone else would, would perceive me, but I think, you know, I think what's also so clear about like your, your Twitter feed and with, um, kind of how you use your voice is it is like so authentically you. And I think that is very clear for me. It's also clear, like the cadence in which I engage, like I'm, I'm sure that some social media consultant would tell me I should post like three times a day at like these times. And like some days I just don't even have the time to like open Twitter. Cause I have three kids and like the other day I realized, oh my gosh, it's like two o'clock and I didn't even do the dishes from breakfast, much less like the dishes from lunch. Like I can listen to the radio, but I don't have time because I don't have like a third like inspector gadget arm to be like looking at my phone and trying to see like what's happening on the kind of, you know, conversations on Twitter. So, you know, I do think, um, I, I hope that it gives people kind of, you know, a sense in like, you know, I only kind of engage you know, and on things I really care about. Um, But if I don't engage, it's not because I don't care about it. It's just because I may not have had time that day or for a few days to like, you know, look at, look at the little like blue and white app on my phone. So I hope people think, yeah, like that is who she is, but also not like, oh, that's all of who she is. Is it, um, I think I, I just feel this, this way that we're constantly in an avalanche of, are you fucking kidding me? Like, like we're constantly in that space. So how do you deal with it? I mean, like you said, there's some days just being a mom, you're not able to even open the app or see, I mean, but I'm sure you're keeping abreast of what's going on, but how do you deal with this avalanche of us seemingly going lower and lower and lower? How do you deal with it? Yeah. Well, I think it's also not seemingly like, I think we are going lower and lower and lower. I mean, I had a number of worries, concerns, kind of, nightmares harbored in my head, um, you know, on January 20th, uh, 2017, as President Obama left the White House and President Trump entered. Um, but I didn't have like a global pandemic, like an acceleration of climate change, like the continued desecration of like civil rights, voting rights, like the not only the mainstreaming, but like the mainlining of hate against like everyone basically who isn't like a wealthy white cisgendered male like on my like oh here's just how 
horrific it could be. Like I knew it was going to be a hall of horrors because he told us so much of what he would do. Um, but the collision of like the, the cruelty and like the bigotry that has so defined him his whole life, like with just the incompetence, I think has been devastating clearly as like we see with hundreds of thousands of Americans dead of COVID-19 and, you know, the fires raging um, in your area. Like I was speaking to someone who's, you know, without power on the Gulf Coast because of um, Hurricane Sally there. Um, and just like the federal government is like, not, not where it should be, to put it mildly, to help like the basic, like protect and preserve of, of human life. And it's because they just don't care. Well, I mean, Clearly, your your experience is kind of twofold because obviously um, your mother was his opponent. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the attacks on her, the attacks against your family, they've been that it's been that way for a long time. So it didn't just start with Donald Trump. So I don't want to give him that much credit. Uh, however, that being said, um, this is the part I have a hard time managing is I have a hard time forgiving the people that thought this was OK. I have a really hard time with that is that. You know, I know some people are like, oh, but he condom. And I'm like, I don't know how. Like, I, I guess I just don't get it. And so I wonder, is there a part of you because you're so positive and you've written more and, and spoken a lot about action, about how we go forward. But is it hard for you to not sometimes give in to that resentment toward people who thought that this was acceptable and, and honestly, people who still think it's acceptable because it's a tight race right now between him and Joe Biden. I think it's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I try to just in general, like not live in a place of, of resentment or bitterness um, because I just don't think that's a healthy place to be. Um, and like, especially like when I was like, you know, breastfeeding, I really do believe like our emotions like flow through our milk. And so I felt this like a you know particular responsibility to to Jasper, our our baby. And yet it would be disingenuous to say, like, I I think there are a lot of people who like don't take responsibility who who do bear responsibility. And, you know, the people who were very transparent about like voting because they wanted a tax cut. Okay, but like you knew you also were voting for like a racist, Islamophobic, like anti-Semitic, like misogynistic, transphobic human being who was going to have a lot of power to manifest those like hateful, bigoted values into the world. So that maybe was your motivation and that may be the story that you tell yourself, but you can't then avoid kind of some responsibility for what has happened because okay, I didn't know that he was so grossly going to mismanage a global pandemic and constantly be undermining the CDC and the FDA. Um, although I'm not terribly surprised because he's trying to win the next election. And that is kind of the only metric of success he cares about, not like actually saving Americans' lives. But like he told us that he would try to ban immigrants. Like he told us that he would cut taxes and like gut the already too small social safety net in our country. Like he told us repeatedly how he feels about women. So of course it's not surprising that he's tried to restrict a woman's right to choose or women's ability to access healthcare broadly. So like this was not the writing on the wall. Like you didn't have to be as maybe engaged as I am. Like you just had to listen to one or two of his speeches or tune into one of the debates like he he told us and showed us like who he is 
repeatedly in 2015 and 2016. As I mentioned, uh, despite, you know, everything going on in the world and particularly um, all the obnoxious things that this president has been about, you remain exceptionally positive. And I think a lot of that um, comes through clearly in the writing that you've done. I mean, you've uh, you've now written six books. Is that correct? I've lost track, but that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Okay, and much of what you've written is geared toward children in particular, and helping them have an understanding of our history, of their sense of worth, of a, a bunch of different things. So you could have written about adults, who I know are pretty lame compared to kids. You could have written about a lot of topics. Why did you decide that you wanted to focus in on children's uh, on children's understanding of the world? So the first book that I wrote was a book called It's Your World, and it was really for kind of preteens and 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 younger teenagers. Uh, and it was really a reaction to so many, both young people I met who were already doing amazing work to try to improve their schools, their communities, like our country, our world, and also a reaction to how many other young people I met, including like my nieces and nephews. My husband's one of 11, so we have 20 nieces and nephews. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and just like, you know, listening to their questions about the world. Like, why are there kids who aren't in school? Like, why are there places where girls can't go to school? Like, why is climate change, like, not something that we all just agree is happening? And like, why aren't we then all doing something about it? I mean, these like pretty basic questions. And so I wrote It's Your World in reaction to kind of those questions and trying to provide some answers and also to share the stories of some of the amazing young change makers I met to help inspire the first group of kids. And then when I became a parent, um, especially admittedly the, the parent of a girl, I realized how many um, picture books are, are told kind of from the male point of view or kind of through a male character's voice and kind of through the male gaze like even so many of the ducks or the bears or the frogs, like animals you wouldn't think like would need to really be gendered, like were boys. Um, and then, then like, as I just looked for more stories written about, written for, kind of centered on girls, I realized just, yeah, they're more than maybe when we were kids, kids but they're still not a lot and there's still not enough. And we're certainly like so far from even now, like in 2020, having like an equal number of like picture books being written about and centered on girls. So I, I wanted to try to help change that. And so that's part of what led to my first um, She Persisted book. And it also was admittedly a bit of a reaction to kind of the now infamous moment where Senator Warren was trying to read a letter that the great Freda Scott King had written more than 30 years earlier about the then nomination of Jeff Sessions to the federal bench. Um, and I think it's always the right time to hear from Mrs. King and think she so deserves to be recognized as the extraordinary civil rights leader. And, you know, like Senator Mitch McConnell didn't agree that it was the right time to hear her words kind of told in Senator Warren's voice. And he was so frustrated that, you know, she just kept trying to do this and nevertheless, she persisted. So kind of all these things all came together of like, oh, like I want to redirect attention on me to women that I think are so extraordinary and that have really inspired me. And clearly we just need more of this in the world and in children's books and kind of all that mesh together. And 
that was she persisted. The first one. Well, I'm glad you brought that up about Coretta Scott King, uh, because I, over the course of the last year, was able to read her autobiography, which I'd never read before. She's a remarkable woman. Brilliant. Okay. And as you said, I don't think people realize this because she was understandably in the shadow of one of the greatest humanitarians that ever lived, but she was amazing. And it says something that the word of Coretta Scott King was not good enough to keep Jeff Sessions. You would think of somebody who had an enormous amount of credibility and expertise in, oh, experiencing racism, that her saying that Jeff Sessions was basically too racist to be in any kind of authoritative judicial position would have been enough in most places, but not here. In 1986, it actually was enough in the Senate for the Reagan White House to like withdraw his nomination. So like someone who was too racist to be a judge in 1986 was apparently like okay to be our attorney general in 2017. And then you're like, of course, because it's Donald Trump. (laughs) Right. Like we are a really racist country and that sucks, but it's honest and we got a lot of work to do. And I think you can see how much work we have to do partly like just in that anecdote, right? Yeah, that that was pretty startling. And I'm not startled often, but that I was like, oh, really? We're doing this. Okay, we are. Um, So you came out with, as you said, She Persisted. That was sort of the first volume. You developed an entire library. So then you take She Persisted into my favorite arena, which is sports, where you're talking about some of the great female Olympians and female athletes of our time. What made you decide to move into the sports arena? I love sports. I mean, like I grew up playing sports. I grew up watching sports. I watch more television like during the Olympics and the Paralympics every two years than probably in the intervening two years. Like I just you know, grew up, um, especially with my mom and my grandmother who really, um, kind of would tell me stories like for my grandmother, like it was, you know, babe Diedrichson Saharius and Wilma Rudolph, who were especially like inspiring to her. And for my mom, it was like, you know, Billie Jean King and Nadia Comaneci who were like really inspiring to her and just how like my mom and my grandmother were like, you know, like casual athletes, um, their talents resided elsewhere, <laughs> but so much of the inspiration kind of to do what they did, like off the field or off the court really came like from, from these extraordinary women athletes who not only proved what was possible, but like even created the understanding of like what was possible. And so I just think like sports, sports figures, and I, I took ballet really seriously as a kid. So also dancers were really important to me, like really important to me to like help keep my spirits up, to help me keep persisting. Um, So my earliest memories are from like the 1984 Olympics and watching that with my parents. I vividly remember watching Flojo break break two uh, world records, 1988 Seoul Olympics, um, records that are still unbroken in the 100 and 200 meter. So when I was just thinking about like the next she persisted, it just felt like, oh, like it has to be. It has to be about these sports figures that have meant so much to me and to the women in my family, especially. And thankfully, like my extraordinary editor, Jill Santapolo, said yes. And Alexander Boyer, who's illustrated all the books, also loves sports. And so then, like, we were off to the races, pun intended, I guess. Well, um, you know, I often have to remind people of this is, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick, obviously what he did was was really special and, and, and great. But before he took a knee the WNBA players 
were the ones who uh, got involved first in uh, protesting against police brutality, specifically the Minnesota Lynx, and um, protesting the Minneapolis Police Department, which obviously would become a very notorious figure in the recent murder of George Floyd. Uh, There's this incredible history of female athletes who have used, used their platform for social issues and continue to fight the good fight, despite the fact they have so much more to lose than a lot of male athletes, uh, especially those who have such bigger professional opportunities. What do you think there is, and especially since you are a former um, athlete yourself, what do you think there is about um, that spirit of activism that seems to be so strong and dominant among a lot of female athletes? Um, Why do you think that is the case? You know, I think about, like Alice Coachman and Wilma Rudolph and like so many of the most extraordinary like black women athletes in the first half of the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, you know, who, who answered this question, like quite pointedly and, and publicly saying like, they didn't think like their work ended after a race was over. And, you know, and, and especially like Wilma Rudolph would, would talk about this like later in her life, like, it almost just seems strange to her that people expected her to like just be an athlete. Um, and, and maybe that's because she became like a, a mother so young and still uh, persisted in her training. Uh, and she, I think she was back on the track, like, you know, four to six weeks, like after she gave birth. And so she already knew she kind of would have to be, to be successful. Like, you know, an athlete, a student and a mom. And so then like, of course she was going to be a citizen too. Like, I think part of what is so compelling about kind of women athletes who have led like, you know, on and off, like the field, the court, the mat, like the pool, like in every forum, is it just felt like obvious to them? And like, how could they not be doing this? Like, I don't think, um, you know, when like I've listened to or spoken with, especially so many of the like WNBA players who've who have been such leaders uh, in the last few years, and I'm grateful they're finally getting at least a little bit of the recognition they deserve. Like I don't think they really had to talk about it for a long time, right? It's not like there were like rounds and rounds of conversations in the locker room or like text message chains or like WhatsApp, you know, conversations happening. It just was like, oh yeah, well, of course we're gonna do this. So I think maybe that is a reflection of, of women's leadership styles of like, we do just have to get things done. And sometimes the work that we have to get done, like, is the work of, of justice or at least trying to push us toward that. You seem very optimistic about um, the younger generation. I mean, you're obviously you have to be, you're raising three young children. So you have to be pretty optimistic, I guess, in some regards about this generation. But um, I guess what is it beyond just your own family dynamic? What is it that gives you hope that this this younger generation that you often speak to through um, your literature is going to be different than maybe the present one? Jim Kim, who is the one of the founders of Partners in Health, the great service organization that has done such incredible work around the world um, to help, as they say, like bring a, a preferential treatment option to the poor, ensuring that. And at anyone anywhere where they work at least is able to access like world-class quality healthcare. He said something years ago that I think about truly every day, which is that optimism is a moral choice. So I get up every day and I choose to be optimistic and I choose to do what I can as a, as a mother, as an advocate, as a citizen, as a teacher, as an author, like 
to help at least try to create more optimism. Because like there is a lot to be really angry about and scared about and cynical about. Like there, like, you know, I think we are living in a moment of um of such profound cynicism because like in this country, like the wealthy white patriarchy is strong and they are willing to trample over every law and kind of moral. And I just think like we had pretty fundamentally different experiences in church growing up because like that is not what I learned in Bible school or Bible camp, which yes, I did attend, um, in which we carved soap animals strangely. And I could recite every book in song form of the New Testament and pull out all sorts of biblical quotes. But like, I think I just had different teachers that had a different like sense of like what it meant to do onto others as you would have them do onto you at the end of the day. And so like, I can either just be really angry about so much, like, you know, I haven't looked at Twitter today, but probably like Donald Trump's been attacking like some person or value or both that I like think is uh, sacred and dear and important. Or I can think like, what can I do? to try to ensure that there's less fertile ground for him. And like, what can I do to try to ensure that there are more young people who don't believe that toward a more perfect union should only include people that look like them and worship like them. That's such a a great takeaway. Optimism is a moral choice. And um, I, I don't think I ever thought of it that way because I'll be honest, like I, what kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit was Charlottesville. And it, it was, it's not that I didn't know racism exists. Of course I, I knew it, have experienced it. So I understand, but it was the young people that were there. Oh yeah. That is what really, it was young people there fighting against the sentiment you know, of of all the hateful and awful things being said. But it was a lot of young people involved in such a hateful movement. And, I, you know, there's this idea in our country that, oh, it's going to die off after a certain age. I was like, uh, this doesn't look like it's dying off people. It looks like it's reinvigorating itself. This goes back to, back to like Credit Scott King, right? Who, you know, spoke and wrote about how like progress had to be like both kind of protected and defended, but also advanced with each generation. Like we couldn't take for granted that we were just the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice because like we bend it. right? <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, there are a lot of young people who clearly hold very different values than I do, who have a very different um, understanding and belief uh, of who should count in our country, who should be able to vote in our country, who should be able to make decisions about our bodies in our country, who kind of should um, be able to participate um, kind of in anything and everything in our country. So I, I don't think that we can take for granted um, that we will kind of be able to be kind of in a more fact-based kind of science-based kind of dignity-based place um, over generations to come. But I think we are better positioned now because I do believe even though there are so many young people, sadly, who either were there in Charlottesville or sympathetic to the people marching and kind of, you know, repeating horrific, like racist and anti-Semitic um, 
taglines that have haunted our country for generations. I do think they are in the minority, but we certainly can't take that for granted. And you know what? Like, we deserve to still try to talk to those people too, to help them hopefully understand why we are so offended by them and, and, and that, that life is long and you can still make a different choice at 21 than what you made at 20 when maybe you were carrying that tiki torch. Yeah, because um, I often look, whenever they show pictures from um, the 60s, particularly some of the protests or when um, the little girls from uh, Little Rock were, were integrating schools, whenever they show those photos, I always look at who else is in the photo and wonder where are these people with the angry expressions who are shouting and belittling children just trying to go to school? And I always wonder what happened to them. Ruby Bridges is 66. That's not old. Mm-mm, I know. Like when she was integrating her elementary school in New Orleans, like that was 60 years ago. Like that was not a long time ago. No, it was not a long time ago. Right. I mean, the woman who falsely accused Emmett Till is still alive. Yep. And so uh, it's important that we remember that history. Um, I guess if you thought about things that were going to probably piss you off today, one of them is Donald Trump trying to change history with the 1776 commission. (laughs) Well, that's a whole nother story. (laughs) That's a whole nother story. But, you know, I kind of said what I said before, like about Bible school, a little bit of a tongue in cheek, but I really do think like I went to public school in Arkansas in the eighties and early nineties. And I think I learned more than like Donald Trump learned in his like fancy private and military schools, like, you know, just a few decades before. And certainly um, I'm incredibly grateful to all the teachers that I had. Like I'm still in touch with my first grade teacher, Mrs. Mitchell. She's now Dr. Mitchell. Um, And, you know, I just, I think I realize how, how grateful I am to the teachers I always had who um, understood why like, critical thinking was important and like also understood that we often had had this kind of like great kind of white male rendering of America, but that that wasn't all that there was. Like we went and visited the Toltec mounds like and learned about the kind of indigenous communities that have been forced out of Arkansas and learned about the role that Arkansas had played on the Trail of Tears. We, like, I just think like, what happened to public education, private education, parochial education, and so much else of the country that thankfully, like my teachers, like really kind of stood up for what was right and taught us what they believed was right and taught us that we should have a view on what we thought was right. Uh, yeah, no, that, that uh, I just, I fear what the, what children in certain areas or in certain places are learning now, because I know it's dramatically different than what you have just described. A couple of years ago in Texas, like the Texas, um, I'm sorry, I don't know if it was like the, the Board of Education, or the Commission of Education tried to remove my mother and Helen Keller from uh, Texas history books, like literally like strip out their names um, because they were both just too radical for what they thought <laughs> kids should be learning in history. Like she was pretty radical. She founder of like, you know, the ACLU, like the person who really first like demanded attention be paid to um, disability rights in our country. And like, yeah, it was just Helen Keller and my mom. They were just too threatening. Also, they truly like, you know, voted to strip them out of like history books that would be in like the public schools of Texas. And then thankfully there was such an outcry 
um, that they had to kind of recant themselves. But oh yeah, when like there like people are being written out of the history books. Like there are so the 1776 mission like didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> but listen, I got a lot more to ask you about, uh, including some fun questions because I understand you're quite the Peppa Pig expert. So <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, we love we love Peppa Pig in our family. Um, and we seem to be off the bubble guppies at the moment. I don't know why. Um, but oh, yeah, I have all sorts of views. All sorts of views about Peppa Pig. OK, we will get into that. We're going to take a quick break. More with Chelsea Clinton when we return to Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So, Chelsea, this was a, a milestone year for you because you had a milestone birthday this year. True. I turned 40. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that probably seems like six years ago just because of everything that's happened in the country. It's funny. So, like, I turned 40 and then we, um, one of our really good friends um, had their son's, like, first birthday party, which was on March 1st. And it was, like, the last thing we did before COVID. And so the last thing we did before the world shut down was we went to like a one-year-old birthday party, which again, to our earlier conversation about optimism, I try to think like, okay, like I have to think that was optimistic. Like this little boy hopefully has, you know, a hundred years or more of life ahead of him. It, it's it's sort of um, in a way startling for me to, to, to think of you turning 40 because I think you're one of those people, especially if you're my age, because um, I'm approaching my mid forties is that we feel like we grew up with you. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, oh my God, Chelsea Clinton. Like all of these anniversaries around these these movies I watched as a kid, like, you know, The Princess Bride or I don't know, like various Star Wars movies. And you're like, oh my gosh, those are, you know, marking their 30th or 35th year. Like that means I'm, I'm also in that. <laughs> so um, uh, I was looking back at a, a, a some slideshows of during your time in, in the White House. Um, it was a interesting to note the fashion. I was like, those are the 90s. But <laughs> the role of jeans, <laughs> right, the, like, role of jeans. <laughs> the role of jeans that we wore. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I, I know you've been asked a lot about what it was like um, growing up, uh, you know, in the White House. And based off some interviews I saw you and your mom do together, it sounds like you know, you're that they tried to uh, when it came to food in particular, that your mom made you eat healthy. And, you know, they were very cognizant of you growing up in the public eye and trying to protect you a little bit. But I did notice that in an interview that you and your mom did that your mother is not as stringent on your children as she was on you. Oh, no. Yeah. What did I mean, she let them get away with that she never let you get away with? I mean, I feel like the answer is everything. Like, you know, it's just. The classic example for us, which I'm sure is like so just common, is my husband and I, um, I have only ever once ever spent like two nights away from our kids and we went to a friend's wedding. So we come back to like pick up our kids, like we get back from the wedding and they had eaten like ice cream twice a day, like after lunch and dinner, they had had like pizza or hot dogs. Um, for lunch and dinner and they'd had pizza for breakfast one day. And I was like, what is this? Like I used to get pizza once a week. I used to get ice cream like once a week. And like, you couldn't even refrain from like pizza, like once a day or like ice cream once a day. Like, I mean, who are you and what have you done with my parents? And my mom was like, we're now grandparents. She's like, it's your responsibility to like work on the healthy eating habits. Like it's my like 
privilege to be able to like break those apart. And yes, like they will love me more for it. And I was like, what is it? It's like shameless manipulation and like everything I feel like I knew about, like the world seems to be totally offended in this moment. So yeah, they do, they now only have like limited unsupervised time because <laughs> it just feels like, you know, it's too tempting for all of them to just be collectively bad, like all together. Uh, so I have um, seen a ton of presidential based movies from American president to first daughter, which I, <laughs> I love first daughter. I'm not going to lie <laughs> with Katie Holmes. Like, I love this movie. Right. Um is there a movie that you have seen about the presidency and what it's like to be in the White House that is so horribly inaccurate that it's almost, I mean, I'm sure they all are, but like, is there one in particular that you feel like is super egregious? I think like on behalf of like the Secret Service and the U.S. Air Force, I was really kind of annoyed by Air Force One. <laughs> like That just would have never happened. Like the Air Force escort Air Force One, like that, what? And like, that's not how the plane is built. And the Secret Service like would have never allowed any of that to happen. So I was just like super offended on their behalf. <laughs> the Secret Service does get done in in these movies. Yeah. yeah it's like, you know, it's like it's a, as a movie, it's a good movie. But like from an accuracy standpoint, it just felt like, Oh, God. No. <laughs> I did see your mom tell a story about how you and your friends tried to order pizza in, in the White House. Was that ever successful? That was never successful. So what we then wound up doing with like um, one of my friends would like get the pizza and then bring it was just like the kind of life hack around that challenge. Yeah. Now, I know your kids are still pretty young, but I, I guess how cognizant are they about where the family stands in American history, your mother being um, the first female presidential, um, you know, nominee or the first one to gain the Democratic nomination, uh, your dad having been the president, like how aware are they of where they now fit in American history? They're aware that they're, we call like, we call my dad Pop-Pop, they're aware that Pop-Pop was president um, and they're aware that uh, grandma um, ran for president. And Aiden, our son, who's now four, I think is particularly like feels connected to this because he knows that he was like in my belly when I was campaigning. And then after he was born that he like you know, went around the country um, with me. Uh, and and so they definitely know that about their grandparents. And they do feel kind of especially, I think, for Aiden, kind of a connection um, to that like, history, like our country's history and also our family's history. Um, but admittedly, we talk a lot more about uh, Donald Trump now and like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, so we and, and we talk about, you know, we talk a lot about coronavirus and how poorly like we think Donald Trump has done, you know, that we're doing our parts, like staying home when we can, like wearing masks whenever we go outside um, and how like Donald Trump like doesn't even believe that you should stay home. Like he goes golfing all the time or he like, you know, is, he doesn't wear a mask and how like wrong that is and irresponsible that is. We talk a lot about Donald Trump like as a bully. So like, you know, in, in things that like they're four and five, but in things they understand because like they know it's important to wear a mask. So like, why is the president not wearing a mask? Like they know that they should treat everyone with respect. Like why is the president so disrespectful? Like they know families should be together. Like, why does the president separate children from their parents? So, you know, we, we talk about things that we really think they'll understand because of what's happening, like in their own lives or just because of, 
kind of how they're living their lives um, because they're citizens. Like they're they're little kids, but like they're citizens. And I I want them to grow up understanding that like being a good citizen is, is part of being a good person. Um, whether they're um, my daughter's on track apparently to be quite tall. So like whether she like you know, wants to work really hard and one day like be a basketball player in school or later in life professionally, um, no pressure, Charlotte, or like, you know, whatever, whatever either of our sons will choose to do. Um, they're always going to be citizens. So we, we, we talk about that and we talk about how much we hope like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win and like what we're going to do to support them and how you know, we're going to vote um, by mail this time. Um, so they're not going to get the great I voted stickers or in New York. I don't know what it's like in California, but in New York, we have these awesome future voter stickers they give kids where it says, you know, future voter. Yeah, they're great. So I was like, you know, we're not going to get the future voter stickers this time because we always take them to vote with us, but they're still going to be there. We fill out our ballots. You'll see us vote. So yes, like they're aware of their grandparents. I think they're proud of their grandparents. They're aware of kind of what they feel are the personal connections to their grandparents. But at least in our house, we're like far more focused on like this election and kind of Donald Trump is a bad president and why we think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris like need to kind of succeed him and what we're going to do to try to help make that possible voting advocacy and more. On that same, along those same lines, I mean, they're aware who their grandparents are, but uh, are, is it hard to shield them from the amount of negativity that has come from Donald Trump and also, by the way, Fox News Um which I swear to God, <laughs> if I had one as a journalist, you, I mean, you understand as somebody who's been the target of them in your family many, many times, as has, as have I. But I try to explain to people, I was like, that's not news. Like, I don't know what they're doing over there. That shit ain't news. Like, it's, it's, it's complete propaganda. But nevertheless, because these attacks are often so public and so vicious, have you, is it a struggle to protect them from that part of it about what people have said and are saying about your family? Thankfully, it's not so much a struggle because they are so young, but we um, we have talked to them a little bit about how Donald Trump like says some mean things, again, kind of language that they can understand and hopefully language that feels like real to them, raw to them, but isn't scary to them. So I see like Donald Trump has said some mean things about um, like grandma and papa, but also um you are also my grandma used to work for president Obama. Like he said lots of mean things about president Obama. He's still totally, we don't say this to them, but parenthetically, he's still totally obsessed with president Obama and my mom. And so they'll say like, well, that's not nice. Right. Like that's not nice. President Obama, that's not nice about grandma. So I say, no, right. But you know, what's worse again, like trying to circle it back to kind of more issues that are rooted in like what's happening and not just the rhetoric. We're like, yeah, that's not nice. But what's worse is, like Donald Trump is, you know, trying to make it hard for people to get the healthcare they need if they have coronavirus. Or Donald Trump is, you know, trying to make it hard for people who are from other countries who want to come and like study in this country to like be a student. He's making that hard. Or you know, trying to take it out of the rhetoric and the meanness. Like I want them to feel like, oh yeah, that's mean and that's not okay. But what's even worse, like, are the things he's doing. But it's not hard to protect them now because like they don't have their own phones. Obviously, like they're one, four, and five. Like they're not watching television by themselves. Um, there've been a couple times where people like approached us, obviously like pre-COVID in the park, and said some things that are, you know, unkind to your face. That, oh, oh! Ev- everything that people say to me on Twitter, they say to me in person. You are, seriously? <laughs> oh my gosh, hundred percent! Like 
I wish you were dead. I'm sorry you feel that way. I wish your mother aborted you. I'm sorry you feel that way. I wish you had died in Benghazi. Then maybe your mother would have had a different reaction. Like, I hope your children die. So your family's line dies with you. Like, I hope your kids wind up in ashes. Like, that's where all Jewish kids should wind up. And I'm just like, the amount of like hate is so intense. Thankfully, it's not. It doesn't happen often, but it definitely happens. You're always just like, what else can you say, Jamel? Except like, I'm so sorry you feel that way. Like, I don't feel that way about your kids. Like, I wish you nothing but the best. Like, hope you have a better day tomorrow. <laughs> like, you know. And this is why you're a better human being than me. Because, and, and you're right. If, if you reacted to everybody, you'd be doing it all day. And I, I understand. But I wish somebody would roll up on me and my kids and say something like that. The next blurb you read in the paper is me whooping somebody's ass. That's what you read about. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, like my kids are playing in the park and it's like, oh, like, I'm okay. I'm sorry you feel that way. So thankfully they're not aware of it because they're like playing in the park. And that is crazy. I do think though, like how I protect them um, and how I equip them to protect themselves, how I um, help them understand to not be closed off. Cause like, I want them to make friends and I want them to be receptive to serious criticism from serious people, whether it's like a friend or a teacher or, you know, their mom. Um, but to be like, armed well and have thick skin against people who are going to say mean, untrue, off the wall, wacky stuff um, because they're my children or my parents' grandchildren. So that'll definitely be like, you know, as their mom, that's a hugely important part of my job that I think will be a never ending part of my job. But right now, thankfully, because they're little, it's like easy to protect them. Uh, before I get to some really fun questions that I have for you, or at least I hope they're fun, uh, with a game that I play with all of my guests, uh, just um, for the obligatory answer, I will ask you what you are asked every single time, and I think you know what that is. Uh, you have often said, I, you know, I listen very carefully to how you phrase this. You said, right now, you've said, like, you know, you you have no plans on running for political office. Keyword is right now, <laughs> all right? But is this something that down the line, whenever down the line may be for you, that you would think about um, doing? Because you do talk a lot about action and how people need to get involved. So Miss Clinton or uh, that does also apply to you. So is this something that maybe in the future you might think about doing? Yeah, I, I definitely think about it. And I, I hope like everyone thinks about this candidly, because clearly we are living in a moment of um, such clear evidence of like who runs for and holds office really matters. Um, so, you know, right now the answer for me is, is no, like I, I really like my city councilwoman in New York city, Carlina Rivera. I think she's doing a great job. Right. And like, I really like my Congresswoman. Um, I like my senators. Um, and, and I think to run for office, Jamal, a few things have to be true. I think like, of course you have to believe it's like the right time in your own life, but you also have to believe like you could do a better job than whomever's there. I think you have to be able to make a really good case. Like I, I not only know what I want to happen, I not only believe I have the right skills and experiences to make that happen, but I'm going to do a better job than the person who's there. Um, I don't think I can do a better job right now with like my councilwoman or congresswoman. So too bad you don't live in Florida. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> that'd be perfect. If you ever move there, <laughs> everybody's behind you, <laughs> right? Oh, Florida, you just disenfranchised 800,000 people and you're going to pretend it's not like the legacy of your own like racist history like manifested today in 2020. But you're 100% right. 
All right, now the fun little game. Uh, it's a game I call This or That, which I play with all my guests. You got two choices, all right? Okay. Um, and you, could, you can't skirt out of these choices. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Um, nachos or tacos? Nachos. Are you beef, chicken? Are you neither vegetarian? What is it? Okay, so I was a vegetarian for a long time. I'm not any longer. Uh, chicken, chicken, chicken nachos. Chicken nachos. Okay. Spicy, spicy chicken nachos. <laughs> oh, spicy. Ooh. Spicy, no sour cream. Just extra cheese. Ooh. Okay. And it's the only way I can get my son to eat lettuce. Where I'm like, look, there's lettuce on top of the nachos. There's green, right? You like eat the whole nacho and then I get you to eat a little lettuce and like everybody wins. That's great negotiating. Um, the voice or the mass singer? Oh, the voice. A better place to live, governor's mansion or the White House? Oh, that's hard. Um, probably the governor's mansion because like I had friends in the neighborhood. And the White House is like kind of isolated place, an amazing place full of amazing people. It is unto itself. It's not like you're in a residential community. Governor's Mansion, I could like walk out and I had like friends across the street, down the street, like on the street over. Yeah. Is it true that you can order any food in the White House? Is that actually true? I don't know because my mother certainly never <laughs> let me test that, right? <laughs> I have no idea if that's true because I was never permitted to try that out. I mean, when they were gone, you weren't like... Hey, can y'all give me some some chicken nachos? There were always eyes, right? There were always people watching. I was never like left alone. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I know you you have a relationship with both uh, Oprah or Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama. <laughs> now, something I, I did read that was pretty interesting is that there's a little sorority between or sorority fraternity, however you want to look at it, between uh, the Bush twins, you and Sasha and, and Malia. Did that just kind of develop organically? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, I think organically. Like, I uh, very much kind of felt protective of the Bush twins who were just a little bit younger than me and certainly very protective of Sasha and Malia um, because, like, I wanted them to have as normal a life as possible. Um, And I knew that was going to be hard, but that it would be possible to like figure out who really wanted to be your friends for you and not because like you were the daughter of someone and how important it is to still like lead your life. Um, So it felt like both like protective, but also, yeah, very much like a a sorority of sorts with them. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've even, um, you've stuck up for Barron Trump as well before when people have gotten kind of nasty about sort of attacking him. I feel very protective of him too. Like, I think he was, I think, he was 11 when his dad won. And that's a year younger than I was, like when my dad um, won and took office. Like, he's a kid. He's a kid. Like, leave him alone. Like, who knows what he's going to be like when he grows up? Like, that's none of our business. Um, and I really don't like it when people like comment on like the clothing choices of like when Sasha and Malia were there or like Baron Trump. I'm like, don't objectify this. Kid, I think he's, he just turned 14. He's like that. He's like a teenager. Like, leave him alone. Like, I, I, I will, like, you know, have a whole lot of sympathy for any, any critiques, criticism, pain, anger you want to hurl at, at his parents. Um, but leave him alone. I heard that. And finally... Because I know this one is more from your generation versus what is the the generation of now. SpongeBob or Peppa Pig? Oh, Peppa Pig. Come on, Peppa Pig every day. 
Although it's really funny, like my kids just discovered SpongeBob. So like we definitely are going to have more SpongeBob in our future. But like, I just, I love Peppa Pig and she's like a feisty little pig and she's a girl, right? Back to what we were talking about earlier. Like she's a feisty little girl and she's like looking out for her brothers, her friends, but like, she's also ensuring like she's, she's doing Peppa Pig. I love that. (laughs) Well, I I saw that uh, when you all did the the interview, I forgot what network or what show it was where you met one of the character voices of Peppa Pig. Did you tell your kids about it and what did they think? They were really impressed. I got to say they were really impressed. It's also, I did that recently with Mo Willems, who's an amazing children's book author who writes these books that we just adore, the Elephant and Piggy series and the Pigeon series. That also got me lots of brownie points where they were like, oh my gosh, the Mo Willems. Yes. Really excited. It's like my my husband um, met Simone Biles, like took a picture of Simone with her total participation. And my kids also were so excited. My daughter, who is not very coordinated yet, she's only five yet, has all these like Simone little like leotards. So we are shameless about like, you know, borrowing like coolness factors from like people that we might meet or like be on shows with. They're like, like, look, kids, like we're cool. Like we met like a Peppa Pig character. We met your like athletic idol. And they're like, it lasts for maybe two seconds. And they're like, oh no, you're still the uncool parents that you were like before you told us. Well, well, maybe when they get a little older, because when, you know, you have a pretty good archive of celebrity sort of encounters and celebrity, you know, meetings. Cause I, I saw one picture of you, you were sitting in between Madonna and Gwyneth Paltrow. And I was like, what? <laughs> so it's always like a, you know, a, a race to be like cool, relevant, fun in our kids' eyes. Even even at like four and five, they're like, yeah, well, mom. <laughs> well, uh, Chelsea, thank you so much for spending this time uh, with me and for continuing to remind people of um, maybe not necessarily the nation we are in the moment, but the nation that we could be. And that be it through your literature or through your Twitter feed. Uh, really appreciate your voice and you continuing to stand on what is right. So thank you so much for joining me on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Thank you so much for having me um, on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And thank you for being unbothered. And thank you for like not giving in to the bullies and for being a strong role model for my daughter and my sons. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, I just have to, uh, you know, just make sure that you don't show them anything with me and the cuss words, because I'm about to say one right now. because uh, I know you have to get out of here, but my final segment on this podcast is coming up next, and that is Fuck It, I'm Bothered, because I am bothered about some things. <laughs> on a relatively regular basis, I'm often hit up by white folks, many of whom are friends, and yes, I do have white friends. And they asked me if I can recommend some black candidates for possible job opportunities. Now, to keep it real with y'all, sometimes I do get annoyed because I want them to do the legwork and develop their own contacts. I want them to make an effort beyond just calling me. And I hope that they really are. But even though it's annoying sometimes, I also know that it's necessary because I don't want to give them any excuses to take it a step further. I don't want them saying the ignorant shit that Charlie Scharf, the CEO of Wells Fargo, said in a June memo to employees in the wake of George Floyd's death. In the memo, Scharf said, quote, we need more diverse representation on our operating committee. He was talking about the bank's top executives. And then he said, 
While it might sound like an excuse, the unfortunate reality is that there's a very limited pool of black talent to recruit from. Full fucking stop. Because fuck it, I'm bothered. What Shore said is definitely an excuse. But worse, it's hurtful, it's ignorant, and it is racist. Or maybe it's just flat out racist. But he is not the only executive in a decision-making capacity who thinks this way. I've heard this a million times by decision makers. And after asking them a few questions about their recruiting practices, it usually boils down to the fact that whatever diversity they lack can be directly correlated to piss poor efforts on their part to nurture, retain and advance black talent. Many of these companies don't recruit at black colleges. They don't reach out to black professional organizations. They don't develop programs to organically grow black talent. The black talent they have in their own building often doesn't get the same consideration as white employees. They aren't promoted at the same rate. They aren't suggested for the most rewarding assignments. They don't get invited to the golf outings and the happy hours where they can network and build alliances. They don't give us assignments that are a little above our station with the hope that we will grow into a bigger role. Overall, they don't keep that same energy when it comes to us. So when I hear people like Sharf blame their lack of diversity on an inadequate pool of candidates, I'm not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt because I question whether or not they actually did the work. Besides, I peeped the jig. If they can somehow blame us for erecting our own ceiling, then that absolves them of any responsibility. Not on my watch. Not today, Satan. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Unbothered.